Speed up with podcast Speed up. Want to read Rationally Speaking and not just listen to it? Come to our website where we're posting complete transcripts of every episode. That's rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me today is our guest, Professor Eric Schwitzgabel. Eric is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author, author of the books Perplexities of Consciousness and Describing Inner Experience, Proponent Meets Skeptic. He's also the author of the excellent philosophy blog Splintered Mind, which I've been a fan of for years. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So great to have you. So one of the things that Eric is most famous for is his work studying uh, the moral behavior of moral philosophers. So examining the question, um, do people whose whose job it is to study the question of how to behave morally, do those people actually behave more morally than the average person or than the average person in a sort of comparative reference class like other professors, for example? Um and uh, hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler to say, no, they, they kind of don't. Um, and what we're going to explore in today's episode is, uh, well, first of all, you know, how did you reach that conclusion, Eric? What was your methodology? What were you measuring? Um, and, and then, you know, what should we conclude from that fact? What does that uh, tell us about moral philosophy um, or, you know, human psychology or whatnot? So does that sound like a good place to jump in? Just sort of explaining yeah. how you came to this conclusion? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Um, maybe I'll give just a little bit of background. So I've mostly done it by looking at a variety of empirical measures. But but before getting into the, the empirical measures of moral behavior or disputably moral behavior, maybe I'll say a little bit about um, how I got interested in the topic and why I thought that yes, great. Uh, the results might be not super encouraging. So um, I've was interested in classical Chinese philosophy. I've been interested in classical Chinese philosophy for a long time. And one of the uh, philosophers I like best is Mencius, or Mengzi. Uh, and he says that if you stop and you think and you reflect about morality, you'll find yourself inclined to do what's morally right. And at the same time I was teaching uh, Mencius and his opponent in the ancient Chinese tradition, Shenzi, about the power of philosophical reflection to shape moral behavior, I was also uh, reading about the Holocaust and teaching about the Holocaust and that sort of thing, and I thought, well, do the you know if I, if someone was in uh, Nazi Germany, right? Would they, by stopping to reflect, discover what we now all think is obviously wrong, mm -hmm. and then not participate in the evil of the regime? Mm -hmm. um, it looks like the empirical evidence from that period. You know, most famously Heidegger, but also lots of other philosophy professors, <laughs> seem to engage in lots of political reflection, ethical reflection, moral reflection. Didn't, some of them resisted the Nazis, but lots of them, including, of course, Heidegger, went along with that. So, uh, kind of putting those two issues beside each other, I wondered uh, whether Mencius was right about the power of reflection to, especially philosophical style moral reflection, to, 
to lead us uh, toward moral improvement. Yeah. Also, looking around just at my colleagues in philosophy, it seemed like the, the those who specialize in ethics didn't seem to behave much better or much worse than anyone else. So these kinds of reflections led me to think, well, you know, has anyone looked at, has anyone empirically looked at the moral behavior of ethicists? And no one had. So I started a series of empirical studies trying to get at the question of whether ethicists actually do behave any differently than uh, other types of professors. Right. So how did you go about that? So the first study I did, and most of this was collaboratively with uh, Joshua Rust. Uh, he's a philosophy professor at Stetson University. The first study uh, that we did was we just asked, we went to an American Philosophical Association meeting, and we set up a table, put up a sign that said, uh, take a five-minute questionnaire, get four Ghirardelli chocolate squares. <laughs> And uh, the chocolate was sufficiently interesting to people that they were willing to answer a few questions about their opinions about their colleagues. So I feel like chocolate a- companies, and especially Giardelli, are just like the unofficial sponsor of all psychology research. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of, we could, it was in San Francisco, so we were running down. We got many more participants than we thought, because everyone wanted these chocolates. Right. <laughs> squares, right? Ghirardelli, this was in San Francisco, and there was a Ghirardelli thing downstairs, and we were just running down getting bags of these things, right? <laughs> so, you know, four chocolate squares cost us about a dollar, so we were getting high-level participants you know, for a dollar, basically. So that was nice. Excellent. <laughs> so what were the questions you asked them? So we asked them, um, I'm not going to get the phrasing exactly right, but it was something like, um, there were two versions of the survey. One asked about ethicists in general, and the one that asked about ethicists in general said something like, think about the ethicists you have known in your personal experience, right? This is at American Philosophical Association meetings, so most of the respondents are professional philosophers. Think about the ethicists you have known from your personal experience, um, on average, do you think they behave about the same, morally better or morally worse than, and there were two versions of it. One was um, philosophy professors not specializing in ethics, and the other version was um, non-professors of similar socioeconomic background, something like that. We gave them a response scale for these two questions from substantially morally better on one side of the scale through about the same in the middle to substantially morally worse on the other side of the scale. And we found that professors were divided in how they responded to this question, right? Some of them said that ethicists behave substantially, uh, somewhat morally better. They clicked something on the morally better side. Some of them uh, said about the same. And a few said substantially, uh, said morally worse, clicked something on the morally worse side. Mm. The ethicists themselves split about uh, equally between better and same, and very few of the ethicists said worse. Whereas the non-ethicist respondents uh, we're split about equally between better, same, and worse uh, for both of the comparison classes, you know, when ethicists were compared both with uh, other professors and with non-academics of similar social background. So that was version one. In version two, we asked the same kinds of questions, except the except instead of asking about ethicists in general, we asked about um, the ethicist in your department whose name comes next in alphabetical order after yours, looping around from Z back to A if necessary. Oh, great. That's such a nice way to to knock people off of, you know, whatever sort of cached archetype they have in their head and get them to actually look at the data. That's right. That's what we thought people might respond based on some general impression that might be misleading based on, say, uh, a highly salient but not representative uh, example or something like that. Yeah. So we asked those two questions. And then basically with that question, we got a similar result with the ethicist respondents um, skewing a bit towards saying the ethicists behave better than the comparison uh, uh, group, uh, although lots of them saying about the same. And then um, the non-ethicist respondents kind of splitting more equally across the spectrum. And, and we did just a kind of a peer opinion study, yeah. 
And uh, at any point, did you look at, at specific um, dimensions of morality, like specific behaviors that ethicists were doing more or less of than other people? Yeah, so most of our stuff has been has been on that, right? So uh, that study kind of established in my mind, in our minds, uh, two things. One is that philosoph- there's no consensus among philosophers about how ethicists behave. So uh, that's already kind of an inter- interesting thing to establish because a lot of people seem to think it's obvious that ethicists would behave the same or better or worse, than they. Um, but it's not obvious to everyone. People give different answers when you actually ask them without their knowing the data. Right. Um, and the other thing uh, it established was you know, one's peers' opinions of you might have some relation to reality, <laughs> or they might not. But we, so we also, but then we went and looked at, we've got now at this point 17 different behavioral measures of different kinds of behavior that's arguably moral. Uh, now, there's lots of dispute about what kinds of behaviors are moral. Uh, so none of the individual measures are going to be convincing to everyone, but they tell a very consistent story across the board when you look at them all. What are some examples of individual measures? So we looked at the rate at which ethics books were missing from academic libraries. That was our second study. Uh, we found that ethics books were actually more likely to be missing than comparison books in philosophy, <laughs> similar in uh, age and popularity. We looked at... Um, whether ethicists and political philosophers were more likely to vote in public elections than mm-hmm. other professors. Here we had a- access to um, publicly available voter participation data in five U.S. states. Ah. And we Can you ma- also look at whether ethicists' self-reports of voting are accurate? That seems like a yes. separate measure. Yes, we did look at that, actually. Ah. So, um, yeah, so we had a bunch of... There, uh, probably our biggest study was one that involved... It was a survey sent to the same five U.S. states... That for which we had the voting data, and we asked uh, ethicist respondents, a comparison group of non-ethicists in the same philosophy departments, and another comparison group of professors not in philosophy at the same universities, right, so three equal size groups of respondents. We contacted about um, a thousand respondents in total. We got about 200 responses from each group, so we got a pretty good response rate. And then we asked, so we asked these people in the first part of the questionnaire, we asked them their opinions about various moral issues. And then we asked them in the second part of the questionnaire to self-report their own behavior on those same issues. Mm-hmm. And then on some of the issues, like the voting issue, we also had about the same participants, some direct measures of their behavior uh, that don't rely on self-report. Although I should say that in interests of participants' uh, privacy, we, we converted everything into... Um, uh, de-identified codes uh, mm-hmm. that we then matched people up with. So we, we were not able to draw individual uh, inferences about particular individuals. All the data was analyzed at a group level. Got it. And the pattern you saw overall was? Was uh, the ethicist behavior was basically identical across the board to the other groups of professors. Mm-hmm. There were some differences, uh, but not very many and not very strong. And mm-hmm. um, uh, overall... We, when you put it together, you combine the data in various kinds of ways, it looks like there's no overall trend uh, toward better behavior. Although we did find on the, when we asked their opinions about various moral issues, that ethicists tended to have the most dem- demanding opinions. They had this, they thought more things were morally good and morally bad, and they were less likely to regard things as morally neutral than were the other groups. They just didn't act on those those principles. They didn't seem to act on those principles. So, like, the most striking example of this was our data on vegetarianism. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any uh, direct observational measures of this, but the self-report measures are already quite interesting. So, 
um, in the first part of one of the questions in the first part of the questionnaire was uh, well, most of the questions in the first part of the questionnaire were set up so that you had these we had these nine point scales that people could respond on mm -hmm. from very morally bad on one end through morally neutral on the middle to very morally good on the other end. Mm -hmm. And then we had a bunch of prompts of types of behavior that people could then rate on these scales. Mm -hmm. One of the types of behavior, one of the prompts was regularly eating the meat of mammals such as beef or pork. And in response to that prompt, 60% uh, of the ethics professors rated it somewhere on the morally bad side. 45% um, of the non-ethicist philosophers, and I think it was somewhere in the high teens for the non-philosophers, 17% or 19%, something like that, for the non-philosophers. Uh, so big difference in moral opinion. Uh, then in the second part of the questionnaire, we asked, did you eat the meat of a mammal, not including, uh, such as beef or pork, at your last evening meal, not including snacks? Mm -hmm. And there we found no statistically detectable difference uh, among the groups. So big difference in mm -hmm. expressed normative attitude, expressed attitude about meat-eating, uh, no detectable difference in self-reported meat-eating behavior. Pretty interesting. I'm I'm wondering whether this is a result of of ethics professors not really believing their ethical conclusions, like having come to to these conclusions in sort of the abstract, but not really. You know how how people might say uh, that they you know believe they'll go to hell if they don't do X, Y, and Z. But then they do X, <laughs> Y, and Z, and you kind of want to say, uh, I think you, like, on some level don't really believe that you're going to go to hell by doing those things. So I wonder if, you know, they th these conclusions are somewhat detached from their everyday lives. Like, I was reminded of this anecdote I heard back when I was in the uh, economics department about some famous econ professor who, I think he was famous for a decision, uh, like a decision-making algorithm or something. And... And at one point in his career, he was facing a, a tough decision of whether or not to leave his current department for a different department. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of agonizing about this. And then one of his colleagues says, well, Bob, I don't know his name. Let's call him Bob. Bob, why don't you use your decision-making algorithm to, to tackle this? <laughs> and, and Bob said, oh, come on now. This is serious. <laughs> Which, anyway, so I'm, I'm wondering right. if, if, if something like that's going on or if you think, no, they really do believe these conclusions. They just don't care enough to act on them right so i think it's pretty i'm i'm very much inclined to think they believe them on an intellectual level at least mm -hmm. right so it sounds like your the econ professor you're talking about regarded it a little bit like a game yeah yeah <laughs> right um and i don't think that i mean when i talk to philosophy professors about things like uh, donation to charity, which is another question we asked about, or eating meat. Uh, they have intellectual opinions that I think are, they don't regard it just as a game. They think it's actually a pretty, pretty real moral choice. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them think it's perfectly fine, and some of them think it's not, right? But it's... Um, but I think they take it pretty seriously, for the most part. Um, so my inclination is to think... Oh, it'll be interesting to think about whether there's some way to measure this, right? But my inclination is to think that they take it pretty seriously at an intellectual level. And then the, the kind of trickier question is whether that penetrates their overall belief structure. Right, like one, one way you might detect this, I don't know if this is actually measurable, but in theory, at least, you could look at how, how sort of 
torn or guilty do they feel about not living up to these standards? Right. You know? Yes. If they don't feel guilty at all, then maybe it's more intellectual. Yeah, I think that's a nice first first stab at it. Um, so, right, so this actually gets, so I've, I've worked quite a bit on the nature of belief in attitudes. This is another dimension of my research. And so let me just give a little background on that. So the, um, there's a class of views which we might think of as intellectualism, uh, according to which what you believe, what your attitudes are, are basically what you would sincerely say they are. And then there's a, and that's the view that I would uh, reject. Mm -hmm. And then the alternative view I think of as being a kind of more broad-based view on which to believe something is to live your life in general as though it were the case. So taking the example you used of the person who uh, talks about hell but doesn't seem to behave in an, uh, accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. On an intellectualist view, if that person is sincere, right, then that person really believes in hell, but they're kind of being irrational, right? right? On a broader type view, like I favor, to believe in hell is a combination of things, including among them sincere insertion, but also including generally how you live your life and what kinds of, what your values are and opinions are as revealed by your behavioral choices and your emotional reactions and your spontaneous inferences about situations and, and that right. sort of thing. Um, so I think that there's a wide range of, it's just part of the human condition that we have, there, there are a wide range of attitudes where we're in between and mixed up. Yeah. Right, and often religious attitudes and moral attitudes are among them. Right, so are intellectual and also case things like racism and sexism are another kind of good, rich vein of cases like this. Right, where right. you intellectually say one thing, you intellectually say, for example, women are just as smart as men. Right, but there are a lot of people who don't live that way, despite their intellectual commitment to that view. Right, right they might right. spontaneously respond to men as being smarter or something like that. So, uh, so you might think, okay, here we've got in the case of. Uh, the ethicist who says that eating meat is wrong, maybe this would be, if the person doesn't, you know, goes ahead and eats meat and doesn't feel bad about it, right, then maybe that would be one of these in-between type cases, mm -hmm. right, where intellectually they're sincere that it's wrong, right, but somehow it hasn't penetrated their whole decision structure, it's not reflected in their mo emotional responses, they don't react to it as though it's something wrong. Um, so I think that definitely is a possibility. It also seems to me that... Uh once you start thinking seriously about ethics, you notice like the scope of, of moral consideration widens so much beyond the typical person's scope. Um, so you're looking at things like, you know, failing to prevent harm or causing indirect harm or um, all of these things, uh, you know, affecting future generations, maybe that normal people don't think about. And, and so at that point, like the word wrong almost means something different because clearly it can't mean something you absolutely shouldn't do because it's just impossible <laughs> to live up to that standard. Right. And so you're, you're right. in this kind of different position where, you know, for a normal person, like behaving morally, I mean, it's not that it's easy, but it's straight, more straightforward in that there's sort of a set of things. You're not supposed to cheat. You're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to, you know, cause unnecessarily violence, etc. And you can kind of just follow those things. But then mm -hmm. once you're, especially if you're, for example, utilitarian, um, and there's just, you know, there's no end to the things that you could in theory do to reduce suffering in the world. Um, now the question becomes, well, where do I draw the line? Like, yes. unless I want to actually try to give as much of my time and resources and, and energy as I possibly can to reducing suffering, unless I want to do that, which almost no one is willing to try to do, then it just, there, you get this question of where do I put the, you know, where do I plant my flag and say, this is where I'm going <laughs> to, and there doesn't seem to be any right. clear way to answer that question. So, right. um, 
I forget where I was going with this. <laughs> but no. anyway, the point is, I think ethics professors or anyone who's sort of thought thought long and hard about ethics, and I would count myself in that category, is just sort of faced with a different situation where it's not, you can't just sort of decide to follow this pre- predetermined set of rules to be moral. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that uh, is also a possibility. And it stands a little bit in tension with the first possibility you were saying, <laughs> um, although maybe it can be reconciled with it. Um, but yeah, so let me just say, I, I think you said it very well, but let me just restate restated in, in some of my own terms too, right? I think for a lot of people, once they start thinking really seriously and regularly about ethics, the world becomes more permeated with ethical choices. Exactly. Right? Especially if, as you point out, if you're a consequentialist or utilitarianism, if you think basically that doing right or good is about maximizing happiness or something like that or welfare in the world, right? Then every single thing you do, I think this is actually also true in other ethical views uh, yeah. as well, but it's really especially clear for consequentialism, right? Every single thing you do, every time you choose to say buy a cup of coffee, you could have done something else, right? You're, yep. you're always short of the moral ideal. You could have taken that $2 for the cup of coffee and donated it to Oxfam, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or whatever your favorite charity is, right? So you've now done something that's ethically short of the ideal. Once you Right, and there's some evidence from Josh's and my work that ethicists do tend to see the world as more ethically permeated. At least on our list, our fairly short list of questions, ethicists tended to avoid saying that things were morally neutral. They tended to say they were either good or bad, whereas the non-ethicists were much more comfortable with describing things as morally neutral. Yeah. Right, so once you see the world as kind of ethically permeated, then you kind of have to face the fact that you are doing things that are short of the ethical ideal all the time. <laughs> That basically everything you do is ethically, I don't know if flawed is the right word, although I think maybe flawed is okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, ethically non-ideal. Um, and then I think once you face, once you acknowledge that, then you get put in this position of thinking, okay, how far short of the ideal am I comfortable being? Right. And maybe it's okay to do things that, in fact, I think are somewhat bad or wrong sometimes, right? Because now that the world is just permeated with all of these decisions, uh, I can't avoid being bad and wrong. So, um, so then, right? So this gives you another way of thinking about the person who thinks, who intellectually says it's wrong to eat meat and yet chooses to do so, right? They might think something like, well, you know, I just, everything I do is so <laughs> permeated with choice. I'm going to do some things that are wrong. I'm not aiming to be a saint. Um, so this is one of those wrong things that I'll just let myself do. It's not maybe super wrong. It's not super bad. So I'm, I'm going to do it. Right. So that's another, so that's another way of seeing it. Right. So that allows for more, I think makes it less like the person who says she believes in hell and then acts as if she doesn't. doesn't, Right. right? Um, it makes it a little more kind of rational than that. Right. But of course, so, uh, to back up for a minute, have you heard of the effective altruist movement? Yes. Okay. So um, I'm, well, I, I'm, I'm at least partially in in that crowd. Um, I have a lot of ideological alignment with them. Certainly, plenty of social alignment with them. Um, and I see this uh, this problem a lot among sort of people who want to be committed effective altruists, where. You know, they've heard Peter Singer's thought experiment about the child dying in, or drowning in the pool. You know, would you jump in and save him even if it cost you a $1,000 suit? Well, yes, of course. Okay, fine. Then why don't you, you know, donate your $1,000 to save the children who are dying on the other side of the world? The only difference is that you can't see those children, you know, but they're dying just the same. Um, and people have really taken this argument to heart. 
and and really do feel guilty. I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people feel guilty when they buy that latte instead of, you know, donating the money to a an effective altruist charity. And so then the 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 other common reaction that I see is this kind of justification of of deliberately aiming at mediocrity, which is something like, well, you know, if I were to sacrifice that much, it would make me, you know, it would be bad for my motivation and my happiness. And it would ultimately make me a worse, you know, I would do a worse job at helping the world because I would be so, you know, strung out and like, you know, deprived of things that are good for human motivation. And I, I, I get that. That makes some sense to me, but it just feels so convenient, you know, like it just so happens that like yeah. all the ethical lines that I want to draw happen to be the ones that are best for maximizing my ethical impact in the world. I just don't <laughs> right. buy it. And I, and yet I don't, I don't see how to, I don't, I don't see a, a way out of this dilemma between, you know, the Scylla and Charybdis of, of, um, uh, hypocrisy and, um, and madness. <laughs> that was a grim, yeah. grim metaphor. You know? <laughs> I, I'm exaggerating here, but like there are plenty of people in the effective altruist movement who are like totally well adjusted and like really are making a large, a great positive impact on the world. But I think for people who really take ideas seriously, this is this is an, a challenge that they often face. I am with you there, and I can't quite see my way through that. I do think that there's this powerful impulse to rationalize when you're conf- when people are confronted with the singer argument. Yeah. Right there is this powerful impulse to rationalize to say, "Oh well, I'm okay because right," and then you get these stories. So I teach Peter Singer's argument in my giant class on evil, the same class where I talked, where I mentioned earlier, where I talked about the Holocaust and that sort of thing. And usually about 400 students, right? And so I present Singer's argument, and then we ha- I do a vote, and you know how many people agree, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And only a minority agree, um, and then I just say, okay, so, you know, tell me why it's wrong, right? And people are very good. They come up with all these rationalizations, right? Right, right, right. But, you know, I've kind of done enough background reading on it that I can bat down the kind of rationalizations uh, that students are apt to come up with in intro classes, you know, on just with, <laughs> just after a day, right? So I can argue them on this question, right? But that doesn't change their minds, right? right. They just reach for other rationalizations. Uh, so there's, I think this is, uh, I mean, this is an, an interesting uh feature of human psychology, right? I think we have these moral opinions and then that are grounded in our, uh, grounded emotionally in a certain way, right? And then the reasoning to justify them comes afterwards. And among the moral opinions that most people have is it's not morally wrong for me to live a middle-class kind of (laughs) American, Western, European lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So they will then try to justify that. Now, I think one possible way to it doesn't completely avoid your dilemma but i think it avoids the madness of the dilemma Mm -hmm. is to become a little more comfortable with seeing yourself as short of the moral ideal without giving up on progress Mm -hmm. and falling into despair as a result of that right so i think we we sometimes put ourselves in a little bit of a uh a bind by thinking by being so hard on ourselves for being immoral. We, we really don't want to see ourselves as immoral. Mm-hmm. So if you become somewhat okay with seeing yourself as immoral so that you can acknowledge, hey, look, you know what? 
I've got this racist and sexist stuff in me, and that's wrong, and I can admit that about myself, and I've got this selfish stuff in me <laughs> that wants, that's willing to let that baby on the other side of the world drown, mm-hmm. um, and, that's, and that's wrong, but not so much that you then kind of collapse from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I've been playing with this related idea of um, not, not trying to answer the question of how moral should I be in, in terms of states, like, like 75% moral or 80% moral or whatever, <laughs> but in yeah. terms of, um, of sort of vectors. Like, yeah. uh, here's, okay, here's a different way to state it that might be clearer. Um, I've, there's a distinction you can make between, um, between ways of approaching uh, utilitarianism or effective altruism, or maybe mm-hmm. other ethical systems as well. I haven't, I have less experience with those. Um, and I've heard the distinction referred to as um, obligation versus opportunity. So obligation is the more traditional, like, these are rules and I have an obligation to follow them. Yeah. And opportunity is more like looking around the world for, <laughs> for lack of a better word, good bargains, ethically speaking. Like, um, looking for, for things mm-hmm. where I can, like, for, for not too much sacrifice or effort or cost on my part, I can, you know, prevent a lot of harm or do a lot of good. Um, and right. that process, that that's sort of... It's a it's a decision making rule that doesn't necessarily imply a state that you need to end up at of you know percentage morality, um, and it's a rule that that sort of by stipulation feels not too effortful to follow. And I do think there's a fair amount of low hanging fruit in the world where like, um, huh? I actually do like um, I do like grilled cheese sandwiches uh, just as much as you know. Burgers, I mean, this won't be true for everyone, but, like, if it were true for you, like, it's pretty easy for me to switch to grilled cheese sandwiches for my daily lunch and instead of burgers and, you know, do a lot of good that way or something like that. Or fill in your own example where, like, it's not that hard. Or, like, take the money you're currently donating to uh, a charity that maybe doesn't have as good of an empirical track record of doing good and just switch that same amount of money to a more effective, empirically validated charity um, that's like a very good bargain that costs you nothing and it does more good in expectation, you know? Um, so this right. is not, it's not a full principled answer to the question of, um, of where to, to draw the line, but it feels at least like an improvement over. Right. The two options. Well, this, I mean, it's, it sounds also, it's a nice way of uh, framing it. It also sounds a little like, uh, su- the philosophical concept of super irrigation. Yes. Yes. Or do right? you want to so explain the, that? Sure. So the, um, the idea of super irrigation is that, uh, you're required, morally required to do a certain minimal amount of stuff, right? And there's other stuff that would be good to do, but you're not required to do it. Right. Um, so you might think, well, look, you know, what's, what's morally required is, you know, not to kill people and not to lie out of self-interest and, you know, not to take money from people and stuff like that. And then it's, it's morally good, but it's not required to give large amounts to charity or something like that. One of the things about, Singer's argument, I think, that's kind of interesting is, you know, it doesn't take advantage of that. Right? It right. Says, well, you know, it's not just good, you know, but not required to uh, save the child. Or it's actually required to save the child. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, there's something comfortable about the super irrigation move. I, I think it can be. A, a kind of sophisticated or subtle way of doing the rationalizations a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure it's fully satisfactory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so have, have you by any chance heard the term shelling fence? 
like a shelling point, but a shelling fence. No, I don't know this okay. one. This is from economics. No, it's um, I think it's from a blog post by this this uh really great blogger who's also a friend of mine. Uh, he writes a blog called Slate Star Codex, which I've plugged on the show before. Anyway, uh, so he's he's talking about these slippery slope dilemmas where you know, uh, it's just not cl- like I could always give more, but how do I how do I decide or like you know the the fetus becomes a a human or a person at some point, but where it's like not really clear. Um, and and he's basically saying, well, uh, you know, a shelling point in economics um, for for people who haven't heard the term is it's a point that's sort of it's significant, um, not because of any inherent property of it, but just because people have sort of agreed that it's significant. They've just chosen that point. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you were to try to meet someone in New York uh, without having arranged ahead of time where to meet them for whatever reason. Um, most people or like a, a plurality of people would pick Grand Central Station. It's just sort of a meeting point. Um, and the reason they pick it is because they expect other people to expect them to pick it, etc. cetera. Right. Um, so a shelling fence is just sort of an arbitrary threshold, a line that you draw on a slippery slope to keep yourself from sliding down the slope all the way, basically. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, so that's sort of what the super, uh, supererogatory... Um, line feels like to me that we, you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be any inherent reason to determine, to call some actions required and other actions optional, but we need some actions to be optional or else madness. Right. So let me, um, let me connect it a little bit to some of the stuff we were saying about belief. Yeah. So... So on this broad conception of what it is to believe something, we have, I suspect, all kinds of elitist and racist and classist and ageist and beauty-driven things that aren't quite beliefs that we would intellectually reject, but that are an important part of the way that we go through the world reacting to people. Yeah. And those are all, I think, morally problematic and some of the people uh, who favor more intellectualist approaches to belief defend that in part by saying, well, look, if you tell people, hey, you know, you think that, you're, uh, that, that you believe that women are just as smart as men and that all the races are equal and that, you know, there's nothing wrong with poor people or ugly people, right? Nice. <laughs> you think you believe those things, but, you know, you really you're, you don't fully believe them. You're more in a mixed up state. People will react negatively to that because they feel like their authority and their moral character is being challenged. Right. Um, and I think that's true that people will react negatively to that. Um, you know, that creates a problem. But I think part of the reason people react negatively to that is that people are so invested in seeing themselves as morally non-criticizable. Mm-hmm. And if we can accommodate ourselves to accepting moral criticism without thinking, without going too far toward <laughs> despair with it or feeling too bad about it, feeling kind of the right amount of bad about it, yeah. <laughs> then I think that creates, um, that's a tool that can help us not need offense. Mm. The, um, it, it, the, the thing that's attractive about super irrigation, I think, or one of the things that's attractive about it is that you can avoid, you can say, ah, I'm morally flawless, right? I might not be morally ideal because I'm not doing all the good things, right? right. But, you know, I haven't 
cross the <laughs> the line into what's bad, right? Right. And this investment in seeing yourself as fully morally non-criticizable, uh, except maybe in certain kind of acknowledged things that you regret about the past, right, or something like that, right? That is part of the pressure, I think, toward supererogation, right? And if we can pull away a little bit from that view and allow more of a graded view across the spectrum, then you don't need to draw, the, you don't need to have this fence or draw this line, mm. right? You might not be bright red, <laughs> right? There doesn't need, but there does, sorry, to take an example of a spectrum, spectrum between, say, blue and red, right? Right, right. <laughs> right? You don't have to say, okay, here's the line, right, where red starts, right? Here's the line where, you know, below which you're morally criticizable and above which you're fine and only, you know, headed toward being closer to the ideal, right? And you can stick with a spectrum type view, maybe a multidimensional spectrum, Right, but you can stick with a spectrum type view. Um, I think if you're okay seeing yourself as you know purple, right, right. Like, but am I bluish purple or am I reddish purple? <laughs> Tell me, Eric. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it's good to be not fully satisfied with being purple, right, and to try to be moving toward the red. But we're almost out of time. But I I want to throw one more idea at you to see what you think. Mm -hmm. um, this just occurred to me as a a potential justification for. Um, for there being a, a difference in kind between supererogatory and non-supererogatory behavior rather than just a difference in degree. Um, and the the um, difference in kind might come down to, um, does my current society basically agree that this behavior is moral or not? Um, and I think, so th this, this actually came up in a debate with, um, I have a lot of friends with like very strong opinions about ethics. And, um, and one divide between them is, is on the issue of animal rights and whether it's wrong to eat animals um, or animal products at all. And so the people on in the, like, it's wrong to eat animals camp have, will often sort of uh, be pretty assertive about trying to pressure or shame the people who disagree with them um, into, uh, you know, not eating animal products. And so this is causing some tension among um among people who, you know, care about ethics. Uh, it'd be better if we could all sort of, you know, get along and work together. Um, but, you know, the animal welfare side says, well, this is really important. You know, there's all this suffering happening. And if we can prevent the suffering by, like, putting on a little bit of pressure, like sacrificing a little bit of group harmony, then that seems like a f the right trade-off. And and it's, it's a little bit hard to sort of argue with that from, you know, from their perspective. But one argument that I've seen that I liked is, you know, it seems appropriate to use pub like shaming or ostracization to discourage behaviors that are in violation of what we all agree is, or basically all agree is morality. Um, like if someone is, you know, beating their, their girlfriend or something, um, it seems correct to like, we don't want to say, well, live and let live. Like we want to discourage some behaviors, but if we allow, public shaming and harassment and ostracization for any behavior that you think is wrong, even if the majority disagrees with you, then like if everyone follows that policy, we all end up shaming and, and harassing each other. And then we have no society or harmony at all. And so those two outcomes seem very different to me. Yeah. You know? Right. So I, I'm more interested in the first person case, I guess, you know, yeah. how you think about yourself. Right. So I'm not, so, I mean, I, I, it's clearly important to hold other people to moral standards and that sort of thing. Um, so, but I'm, uh, I think that the dilemmas arise pretty vividly also in the first person case. And for me, at least, I'm sufficiently skeptical about my own moral opinions that I don't want to try to inflict them very much on others. Yeah. 
Yeah, so then uh, then it's not as clear that what you're saying will work for to avoid the kind of... Or to, to help... To help an uh, individual decide for himself where to draw the line. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> on that note, <laughs> we, we're, we're over time for this. On that depressing podcast. note, hopefully yeah. not too depressing. Just the right <laughs> amount. What I want is the right, right. amount of depressing. purple depressing, not blue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so we'll let's wrap up this part of the podcast and we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking pick. Welcome back. Every episode of Rationally Speaking, we invite our guest to recommend a pick of the episode. That's a book or website or anything that tickles his or her rational fancy. Eric, what's your pick for this episode? Uh, my pick is Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind. Oh, excellent. You know that book? I think I got it from my mom for Christmas this past year. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't ask you if you know something. It put you in a no, awkward position. But, um, yeah, it's a wonderful book. Uh, uh, it's been Haidt has been very influential in moral psychology um, but it's also very accessible to general readers, so it's kind of a perfect mix of uh, uh, accessible and um, field-pushing. He, uh, he talks a lot about uh, rationalization and the emotional basis of our morality, right? So in his view, our moral judgments are grounded in a variety of kind of um, emotional reactions. And then kind of after the fact, we come up with uh, rational justifications for those emotional reactions, he also thinks pretty interestingly that there's not just one emotional foundation or intuitive foundation of morality, but several, and that those and different people differ in how much emphasis they put on those, right? So he thinks that um, some people put a lot of emphasis on violations of uh, care and harm for people, um, and other people put a lot of uh, emphasis on violations of standards of loyalty or standards of purity, mm-hmm. whereas other people don't have much interest in loyalty and purity, and that those differences in uh, moral emotional reactions can explain political differences and that sort of thing. So it's a fascinating book that I would recommend to yeah. uh, podcast I, listeners. I, I would definitely recommend it too. And I, I think it's been, it's really influenced the, the sort of public or intellectual debate or discussions about politics and about psychology and morality. So it's great to be well-versed in it, if, if even just for that. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, we are officially out of time now. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. I thought this was just a delightful, super fun discussion from from my perspective, at least. Uh, I hope yeah. you enjoyed it, too. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.